You're listening to the James Faith in Jesus Work Series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Three weeks ago, we were confronted by James with a real and disturbing problem that faced the early church. This was a problem of partiality, a problem of favoritism. And what we realized as we looked at the passage last time is that the practice of favoritism and partiality is alive and well today. The world around us, we see it everywhere. In fact, it's amazing how over the last few years it's become more and more and more of an issue. You'd think that we'd be going the right direction by this time, but that's not the way that the world is going. Maybe even more disturbing than that is the fact that we see partiality within the church of Jesus Christ, and that should not be the case. Now, if we're being completely honest, we don't see the same problem of partiality as obvious in our church today. And that's a good thing. We can be thankful for that. The the example that's given, where someone comes through the door and the rich man is given the best seat and the poor man is basically told to sit on the ground or stand at the back or, or just get out of our way, that kind of thing wouldn't happen. But we still have a more subtle version of partiality. It's still this idea that when someone comes in and they've got it all together, those are the people that we want to get. Those are the people that we, we want to see come and be faithful. And when somebody's really messed up, we just don't have as much love for that person, it seems. Um, and this isn't always the case, but, but it often is. We today would denounce the practice of partiality. That's maybe something that they wouldn't have done back then. But today we would denounce the practice of partiality, but we cannot deny the presence of partiality. It still exists. Though we know it's bad, it still exists. And we discriminate on a number of fronts, race, education, class, social status, age, religion, etc. There's so many things that we could talk about where we, we discriminate. And we understand that the church will not have a huge direct in, um, impact on the culture around us. It's not like we can determine here in church what everybody else is supposed to believe and how they're going to act and how they're going to they're be. The world is going to be the world. And so I say we will not have a direct impact on the world. However, we do get to determine what our church looks like. We can sit here tonight and say, what, what kind of church do we want to be? Do we want it to be a church that has favoritism, that, that resembles the world, even in small ways, even if it's better, do we want it to be just kind of a slightly better version of the world? Or do we want to be a church that really practices love one toward another? We get to decide that. Now, I believe that when Christians will, will band together and do this, eventually there will be an impact on our culture. Right? It's not like we get to decide for them, but we see examples of the church being the church in the book of Acts, with the, with the church of Ephesus, the whole culture was flipped on its head because of the actions of the church, because of the growth that they saw. But it doesn't happen until the church starts being the church from within. We're going to be in the book of James, chapter 2, starting in verse 8 in just a moment, tonight. And I'm looking forward to getting back into this subject. James continues his discussion on partiality. We begin the, our text tonight knowing that we are jumping into the middle of a paragraph that James is writing on a problem that he has identified within the church. There is a right way and a wrong way to possess our faith. The wrong way 
is to be partial, to be prejudiced. The right way is to be loving. And we're going to talk tonight in a little bit of detail about what it means to be loving to other people within the church. In our verses preceding chapter, verse 8, James gives three reasons why Christians should not be partial any longer. Now remember, he's dealing in a society where partiality is rampant. It, it is expected. And he says three reasons. He says, number one, God chooses all kinds of people to be part of his family, including the poor and the foolish. So how can you be partial when, when you're one of a group of people that God has chosen and God is selecting all of these people? God is, God is loving, he's lavishing his love on all of these people who are so diverse, so different. How can you then say, but yeah, God loved a sinner like me, but I'm going to not love that sinner over there. doesn't make any sense. He goes on, he says, don't you realize that it's actually the rich people in your community that are antagonizing Christianity, that are antagonizing you, that are bringing you into bondage, that are treat, mistreating you. It is the rich people in society that are blaspheming your God. Now, certainly we understand poor people do that too, but it seems like still, the, the ones that are, you know, consider themselves really, really smart, and really they got it all together, they seem to be the ones that are most antagonistic toward Christianity, as though they don't need a savior. And so he says, how can you be partial when you're from this group of people? It doesn't make any sense. Let's look at James chapter 2, verse 8. James says, If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. You want to know what you should do? You want to know what is the, the right thing to do? Is to love your neighbor as yourself. And at this moment... We all agree, because we've heard that before, right? I mean, we know that we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's kind of like the basic thing that you teach all children when they're growing up. How do I treat my brother or sister? Well, you love them like you love yourself, right? If they, you wouldn't want them to do it to you, you don't do it to them. That's basic morality that we teach everyone. So we would agree with that. It's first given by God in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. It says, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. So God is clear right from the beginning. This is the law. And this law is given in the context of you should not be letting rich people off in judgment and then judging the poor more harshly. right? And so it's even in the context of showing favoritism that this law is given in the first place. Then we find, again, it's affirmed by Christ as a central purpose behind the Ten Commandments. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 to 40, these are very well-known verses. There's a, a man that comes to him, says, Master, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What a powerful statement that is. The Ten Commandments teach us how to properly love God and how to properly love our neighbor. But they're all built on the foundation of loving God, loving your neighbor. And if we would love God and love our neighbor, we would keep the Ten Commandments. Right? It's amazing how you can just boil it all down. What, is, what does God expect from us? What, what does God want from us? 
man, sometimes we make it so complicated, don't we? Sometimes it's like, well, you got to know all these things, and you got to do this, and you got to do this. And it's like, well, I mean, here's a good starting place. Love God, love your neighbor. Now, you do have to learn exactly how to do that. Okay? There, there are some things to learn about what love really looks like because we've been programmed poorly in some of these areas. But if we would just start trying to do that, I mean, it's a lot easier to direct the car that's moving than it is to try and move the car and then tell it which way to go, right? And so start loving. We find that Paul also picked up on the same theme in Romans. Right at the Roman church, in chapter 13, verse 9, he said, For this... Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended or summarized or understood in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love works no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So love is the ruling principle at the core of God's moral demands. It is a ruling principle that is to be worked out in our everyday life. What's interesting about this is that we we have to see that love is immensely practical. Love is not just this kind of feeling. And so when when James is writing here and he's saying, guys, if you want to know how to do well, love your neighbor as yourself, he doesn't mean, okay, everybody just sit down and really start gathering some really wonderful, beautiful thoughts about all these people that you know. Right? It's not this like thing that happens in your head where you're, or, or in your gut or in your feeling where you're just like passionate about other people. Uh, and one of the ways that I think we realize how this works is he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? Now, some of you, some of you, this, this, this example is not going to work with, okay? but I think most of us it will because some of you really, really love yourselves. All right? But when, when you think about how you love yourself, do you look in the mirror and just like, what? I am amazing. I, like, when I look in the mirror, I get butterflies. Because I'm so beautiful. I mean, probably not. Some of you might. I think Landon does. Landon, we'll, we'll tell Landon to do something. And then, how do you do it? Yeah, sure. And he's like, like he's going to go do what we told him to do, but he's going to do it the coolest way possible because he's the coolest guy ever, right? Yeah. He's actually, right now, he's got his eyebrows going up and down. <laughs> and so, so some of us, we have this, like, maybe, maybe there's some people who have this weird kind of love for ourselves that is, like, we're just really attached to ourselves. But, but the truth is, I think most of us, when we, we get up in the morning, we look in the mirror, we go, ooh, no, I got some work to do. And so we do that work. And, but, but the whole thing is, right, you don't just, like, Ooh, e, I'm then like, man, never mind. No, I don't, I don't care. I don't care about how I look. I don't care about what I'm going to wear. I don't care about what I'm going to eat. I'm gonna, I don't care about um, how I'm going to be taken care of. That's not how we work, right? We might not like look at the mirror and get butterflies about ourselves, but we still know to take care of ourselves. Right? We still know to, to try and make it better. We still know to show care and concern and, and we, to, to take care of physical needs. That's how we love ourselves. So, it, so the love that we have for ourselves is actually very practical. And he's saying, love your neighbor in the same way. You don't have to, to get butterflies when you're around them. You don't have to feel really good about them. You don't feel really good about yourself all the time. But you still know to have care and concern for yourself. And so this is how you love your neighbor. Consider the marriage ceremony. Okay, we, we look at marriage and we say, oh, that's supposed to be a picture of two people coming together because they love each other and they're, they're promising their love to each other. 
But you notice that in the vows, it doesn't say, will you have butterflies every time you see this person for the rest of your life? And the, the husband responds, I do. Right? It's not how the ceremony goes. The ceremony is not about being weightless when he is near. I do. That's not the promise you make. It's not about your feelings. It's about your will. Will you promise to love them even when times are tough? Even when it really sucks? Even when you're poor? Even when you don't have butterflies? That's the promise you make, right? And so love is practical because it's a decision of the will. It's not just a feeling in your, in, in your mind or in your heart. Love is the ruling principle at the core of, of God's moral demands. We are called to love, and love works itself out in obedience. Obedience to God's command is the demonstration that we love. It's the demonstration that we love God, because Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? It's the demonstration that we love others when we're, when we're acting in love. In fact, the, the greatest demonstration of love ever was not God writing a beautiful poem to us. It was God sending his son to brutally die on a cross for us. It's an act of the will. It wasn't, wasn't pretty, but it was sacrificial. It was a decision. It was his will that we be saved. And so he did everything he needed to do, though it, though it meant great sacrifice on his behalf. His part. He loved. We are called to love. You're called to obey. And Alistair Begg said it this way. He said, love is not the victim of our emotions. It is the servant of our will. That's good. Love does what is right. Verse number nine. But if you have respect of persons, you commit sin. Right? You break the law. And you're convicted or convinced of the law as transgressors. So all of what Paul is talking, or what James is talking about when he's talking about love, it's leading to, to something. He, ha- he has a point, right? And he's making the point now. He's saying that if you have favoritism, if you have this partiality, if you have respect to persons, then you're breaking the law. Because why? Not showing love. It's almost ironic the way that it's said here. Because this is given as the royal law, Right? What is a royal law? It's the king's law. But in their society, they had this aristocratic law, this, this idea that within high society, there was a certain code, a certain standard of conduct that was expected for rich people and a different standard of conduct that was expected for poor people. So their whole society was based on a system that was, I mean, it was, it was almost a law that placed rich people in a, in a greater category People of Roman citizenship as a, in a greater category. People of higher education in a greater category as those. And then they were expected to be treated differently. This is the aristocratic law. And he says, yeah, okay, that's good. That's the rich people's law. That's, this is how this works. But I've got a law that's better for you. It's the king's law. And maybe here you expect the king's law to be, man, I mean, if you're going to treat the rich people this way, you better treat the king this way. It's not at all. The king's law is you love everybody equally, and you don't discriminate between riches and, and education and, and all these things. Um, and so it's, it's almost ironic, but the, the royal law is we get rid of the aristocratic law. James says that there is a greater law than that law, 
you know it already, but it is time that you apply it. And if you don't apply it, then you are a sinner. And, and for a lot of them, what they would do, what, what the Jews were kind of taught to do, is they, they categorized their sins. And there was actually a group of teachers that taught that if you could keep all of God's law in one area, you know, in one realm, then you would garner favor from God. So there were some people that would just be, you know what, I'm going to tithe. And so for the rest of their life, they kept all of God's tithing laws. They tied the mint and anise and cumin. I mean, they were just really crazy about the way that they tied to make sure that they were giving 10% of everything they, they had to the right places. And there was three different ties they had to make. So they, they were making sure they did all those ties. And, I mean, they nailed it. So if somebody was come to them and, and try and convict them of not tithing properly, there would be, never be any evidence that they didn't do it right. Some people would be more um, serious about the sacrificial laws. Right? They did all their sacrifices exactly when they're supposed to, exactly said what they're supposed to. Like, down to, what, to the smallest detail, they, they kept the law in that area. Some were really serious about the laws of the Sabbath. And so they, they might say something like, well, nobody is perfect, but at least I do this. At least I keep this law. I look at this area of my life. You'll see that I'm actually pretty good. And what he's going to do is he's going to destroy that. Right? He begins by saying favoritism con- contradicts not just one law, it contradicts the whole spirit of God's law. The whole idea of love is ruined because you're keeping this like social code. Favoritism is the antithesis of loving your neighbor. So here's what he says in verse 10. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. So he takes those people who say, well, look at this area, and I've got it all covered in this area. And he says, you can have every area of your life covered except for one. And you break the law one time, and you become guilty of all. Sometimes I think what we do is we think of the law and breaking the law, and I think that maybe this is, was their mindset. It was as if there was like this massive pile of rocks. And every time they sinned, they just took one pile off the rock and they, they, they threw it away. And, and so maybe eventually your, your perfection or whatever, it's the, this pile of rocks, it's not as big as it used to be, but it's still a nice pile of rocks. And he's saying, no, it's not like that. It's like, it's like a, a pane of glass. And you hit it one time in any place, it doesn't matter where. And that pane is shattered. Okay? And you are guilty of all. And what, what happens when you become guilty of all? You get placed on the level of every other person in the room. If we were, I know we say this, we say things like this often. You say, I am just as guilty as, as all of you, right? In fact, I mean, a lot of pastors would go to the point of saying, I'm probably the worst sinner in the room. That's, I mean, Paul, Paul said that, right? Um. If we were to actually look at everybody's life here and we were able to lay out all of your past misdeeds, do you know what we'd find? That from our perspective, some of you seem to be better than others. That's the honest truth. There's some of you that that think a whole lot of bad things. Some of you think maybe a little less bad things. If we were to do it from, from our perspective, right, we would actually start placing people in areas. These are the really, really bad ones. These ones are bad. These ones are on the good side of that, right? That's categories we could form. And what he's trying to do here is he's trying to say there is absolutely no category that you can place a sinner in other than a lawbreaker. 
a transgressor. They've broken the whole thing. Look how he goes on in verse 11. He says, For he that said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not kill. If you commit no adultery, and if, yet if you kill, you are become a transgressor of the law. Right? I mean, their strategy has gone out the window. There's no way of saying I'm less of a lawbreaker than someone else if when I break any part of the law, I'm guilty of the whole law. Right? You lie, it doesn't, you lying doesn't mean that you're not, you're only a liar. It means you're a lawbreaker. Right? It, it doesn't make you a better person than a thief or than a, a coveter or whatever. So he, what he's saying is, recognize that you're all on the exact same playing field. You are all breakers of the law. You're all guilty of all. This is a wonderful verse that helps us understand why we are on the same playing field when we enter the family of God. We approach the cross, and we should all feel the weight of our guilt. I mean, as we come to the cross, and we feel ourselves as wicked, terrible sinners who have broken the law of God, we shouldn't come to the cross feeling like, man, you know what, I'm not, the sin on my back is not that heavy. We should come to the cross seeing the fact that we have broken the holy law of God. And then as we come to the cross, and we kneel before the cross, and we repent of our sins, and we place our sins on Christ on the cross, and he pays the penalty, and, and he dies, and our sins are washed away, we stand up as free as, as you can imagine, and as free as every other person who has done the same thing as us. That's the whole point of, I mean, the phrase, you know, we're all at the same playing field, all the same level at the cross. That's absolutely true, but why is that true? Because we all came completely guilty, and we all stand up completely free, completely forgiven, right? There's not one robe that's whiter than another. Verse number 12. So speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. Words and actions should be as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. What we say, what we do, the way that we live, it should be obvious that we are now not under the law of bondage to sin, but we are under the law of liberty. This is a very broad statement. It's true across the board. The law of freedom is different than the, the law of Moses. Okay, The law of Moses exposes our sin. The law of Moses reveals to us the holiness of our God. It, it, so in the law of Moses, I would never... Don't ever think the law of Moses doesn't have a place. It is important. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. The law that God gave is, is so important for us. But the one thing that that law can never do, it can never save. And so he's saying, you're not being judged now by the law of Moses. You're as those being judged by the law of liberty, the law of freedom. Right? So what that says, it says so much in just such a short phrase. It says that now you're free from the bondage, you're free from the power of sin, you're free from the punishment of sin, that you're not under that other law. Right? We're, not, we're not abolishing the law or saying the law is no good. The law is still a great moral standard. It still reveals the character of God. But you're not under the punishment of the law. You are free. But it, it's called a law of freedom because that law, that freedom, still demands something of us. It demands that we ought to live a certain way. And so he's telling them to recognize their freedom and live in light of that freedom, live in light of what has been accomplished for them. 
Live in light of the fact that they're not under the law of Moses anymore. You don't have to live a life that is crushed by the guilt of, of your past sin, crushed by who you are. You can live a life now knowing that you're free of that guilt, that you're free from the bondage of sin, but you're still, you're still um, living in thanksgiving to your Savior. You're still living recognizing the cost that your salvation meant for our Savior, for Christ. And so we live, we speak, and we do as though that sh- those that shall be judged by the law of liberty. He applies the truth to the situation we're talking about in verse 13. It says, For he shall have judgment without mercy that has showed no mercy, and mercy rejoices against judgment. Now, that's a, a verse that is confusing the first time you read it. It certainly was for me. But it's saying, God will judge the person without mercy if that person shows no mercy to others. But the wonderful news at the end there is that mercy triumphs over judgment. And so we've got to choose what category we want to be in. Do we want to be in the category of those who have received mercy, or do we want to be in the category, because we, we find that mercy will triumph over judgment, right? Or do we want to be in the category of those who will receive no mercy and obviously be judged? And I think the answer is, is pretty obvious. But this is a terrifying thought. If we don't show mercy, God will not show mercy on us. And this is where we got to look at the Bible. We really, we really got to think a little bit. Okay? Because we, I mean, what, we, what he says here, you got to pause and say, well, wait, is he saying that the only way I can be saved is if I show mercy? That somehow showing mercy is going to gain salvation for me? I mean, it doesn't seem to correspond with what's taught in the rest of Scripture, but is that what James is saying? Well, there are a few times in the Bible that teach something very similar to this. So I want to look at those times. Um, Jesus teaches the same thing on several occasions. Uh, there is first the parable of the unmerciful servant. Right? You all know this parable where a king forgives his servant a debt of 10,000 talents. Now, 10,000 talents in our equivalent would be about $1.3 billion. Okay? It's an insane amount. Um, there was one you know, scholar that did the study, and he found it was actually um, gr- 10,000 talents was a greater sum than the gross national product of Egypt during this time. So a whole country was producing less than 10,000 talents in a year. That's, that's pretty crazy. So it, the, the idea of that sum is that it's a sum that nobody could ever pay back. Nobody ever has that much money. I mean, you're not going to be able to pay back a billion dollars, especially if you're a servant working for the king. And yet he's forgiven a debt like that. What an incredible thing. That same servant, on his way out, goes out, and he finds another servant, his fellow servant. His fellow servant owes him some money. He owes him a hundred pence. He grabs the servant and he says, pay me back everything you owe me right now. And that servant says, I can't. I can't right now. Um, give me some time. You know, I, I'm going to work on it. I'm going to do it. Um, but give me time. And the first servant says, I'm taking you. I'm taking your family. I'm, I'm putting you in prison. This is debtor's prison until you pay me back. Now, clearly once they're in prison, they're, they have no ability to pay anything back. But he's so unkind. He's so unmerciful to this servant who owes him 
a little bit. Now, the great thing about this parable, I like about this parable, is that 100 pence is not just a little bit of money, right? 100 pence is about four months' wages. So, say, ten to $15,000 for most blue-collar workers. So you got, you got a pretty good sum of money. It's nothing compared to a billion dollars. But it's a pretty good sum of money. And, and what the Lord does is the Lord says, what a wicked servant you are. And he takes that servant and he casts him into to bondage, into torment. He puts him into the debtor's prison. Because he doesn't recognize the gift that he was given. And so when Jesus is explaining this parable... Um, the king says in verse 33, Shouldest not thou has had compassion on your fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And the Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay what was due unto him. Jesus said in verse 35, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. Again, we read those verses and we say, I recognize that obviously forgiveness is pretty important. Is he saying that the only way that God will forgive me is if I forgive other people? It sounds like I have to work at it. The Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Verse 14, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So the question is, does our forgiving one another cause God to forgive us? Or is forgiving one another a result of the proper understanding of the forgiveness that we have received? And we really should, we should, we should ask this question. We should, we should want to know the answer of this question, because this is a big deal. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Paul writes, Be kind you to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So Paul says that you should forgive. Why should you forgive? Because God, for Christ's sake, has already forgiven you. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy, beloved, and he goes on, he gives a, a number of character traits that believers should be putting on in their life. Right? They should be trying to incorporate into who they are now. Verse 13 says, forbearing one another, forgiving one another, if any man has a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And so what I'm saying here is, we look at these verses and we see that what is very apparent is that God expects that people who have been forgiven, people who have been shown mercy, will in turn be merciful, right? will forgive. And when they don't forgive, it almost seems like there is no forgiveness for them. And what we do is we either say that's because forgiveness is required, our work of forgiveness is required for salvation, or it's because the forgiving act of another person, of, of, of a, a believer toward another person, is, is a result of the fact that God has forgiven us. Right? It is an evidence that God has forgiven us. 
And if we rightly understand that we have been forgiven, then we must forgive other people. And if we don't, if we've been forgiven and we don't really understand the gospel, and we know the lingo, we know how to act right, we know all the other things, but you see a pattern of unforgiveness in our life, that you have a, a reason to say, have I really been forgiven? I mean, this is something that is expected by God. That if you've been forgiven, you will forgive. If you've been shown mercy, you will show mercy on other people. And so, I, I don't think what James is saying here, and I don't think what Jesus is teaching here, is that you must forgive because God will withhold his forgiveness if you don't forgive. I don't think that's how it goes. I think it's, it's showing the relationship that is so close between our being forgiven by God and our willingness to forgive other people. And if that willingness to forgive other people is, is not there, then that's, that's evidence that we've never been forgiven in the first place. So, forgiving people must forgive. Forgiven people must be forgiven. Right? I mean, it, it's, it's a pretty strong push for us as believers to be willing to forgive other people. Um, this thought of the relationship between works, faith, and salvation is one that, that's going to be covered by James in great detail over the next 13 verses. Okay? So the next two sermons, likely, will be all about this thought between faith and works and how those things work out together. But what I'm saying to you is that if we've been saved, it's not just so that we can end up in heaven someday. It's so that we can be changed. It's so that we can be different people now. It's so that we can be transformed from who we were to who God is making us. And if there's no transformation happening, if there's no work of the Spirit in our life, if there's no evidence that salvation has occurred, how can we How can we really look at that and say something transformative happened? Because we're not just saved to be in heaven. We're saved to be different people. And so now we want to bring this command to be merciful back full circle to the topic at hand, right? Because the, the idea of mercy came from favoritism. So how do we get back there? Well, the point is this. Some people maybe don't deserve to be cared for. Some people maybe don't deserve to be loved. Maybe somebody walks in here and they're a complete mess, and they made it that way. It's their fault, and, and they've been given every opportunity, and they've chosen to neglect it. And so what do you do with people like that? Mercy is not getting what you rightly deserve. And so what I think James is teaching us now, this whole idea of being willing to show mercy to other people because we've been shown mercy, is that if you think about how God looked at you from heaven, why would he forgive someone like you? Did you deserve it? Right? Did you just have such a winning personality that God said, man, I'm going to... I'm definitely going to give my son for this one. No, obviously not. When we're thinking of the holiness of God and us, there's no way that we could ever merit. So mercy is not getting what we deserve. We deserve judgment. We deserve um, God's justice to fall on our heads. He gives us mercy. He doesn't give us what we deserve. And now he's saying when, when people come in or people in your church and they don't deserve that love, they don't deserve that compassion, they don't deserve that care, I don't care. I don't care what they're deserving of. Show them mercy. That's the idea of not being, not showing favorites. Maybe some people have worked harder and that's why they're wealthy. Maybe, maybe it's not just that some people had opportunity. I don't, I don't know. But I know that we're called to show love to every person that walks through the doors. And we're called to show love to every person in this room. Right? And, and some people, maybe it takes a little bit more mercy to show love to them. 
but we should do it. What is James saying? He's saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Keep the royal law. This is the foundation of all of God's moral law. This means rooting out and putting an end to our tendency to partiality. It means recognizing that we are on level ground with all believers. And to be honest with you, when it comes to our sin, we're as deserving as judgment of judgment of, of everybody in this world. It means learning to show mercy because we have been shown mercy. Now, I think loving your neighbor means a whole lot more than that. But in this text, it means at least that. So we should go out this week, go out with our lives. Let's start trying to love our neighbors a little bit better. How can we show mercy to other people? We've shown so much mercy.